Hello, everyone, and welcome to an episode of the Strange Matters podcast. Here at Strange Matters, we discuss everything that is bizarre, mysterious, and unexplained. I am Sean, and I will be the host for this discussion. In this episode of Strange Matters, I will be talking about the sudden and mystifying disappearance of two Dutch girls, Chris Kramers and Lisanne Froon. These two went missing in Panama after they had set out on a hike. A long and exhaustive search of the area where the girls should have been turned up empty for weeks, as teams from both Panama and the Netherlands searched the trails for any signs of the missing hikers. As the investigation continued, some clues would be found that revealed a slight amount of information about the lost girls, but at the same time brought up even more unanswered questions as to what had actually happened. As this case caught international interest, ideas and theories surrounding this mystery arose in an attempt to give some type of explanation behind this case. In this episode, I will be going over the events that led up to and followed the disappearance of Chris and Lisanne, as well as going over the multitude of possible theories that have been brought forth by both investigators and mystery lovers alike all over the world. The story behind this episode was a highly requested topic as of late as it was suggested to the podcast by one of our supporters, Wendy, as well as fellow listeners Simon, Carl, and Misha. So thanks a lot to them for sending in the idea behind this interesting and creepy mystery. Before we begin, a reminder that Strange Matters podcast is made possible by our generous supporters over on Patreon. On Patreon, listeners can pledge a small monthly donation, and in exchange can gain access to exclusive episodes and help decide the direction of the podcast. For any interested listeners, you can reach our page at patreon.com slash strangematters. For this week, I'd especially like to thank our newest supporters, Michael, Joseph, Megan, and Jacob. And now, to begin the story of the lost Dutch girls, Chris Kramers and Lisanne Froome. This mystery would begin in April of 2014, when Lisanne and Chris arrived in Panama while on a trip. Lisanne Froome was a 22-year-old Dutch woman who was described as aspiring and intelligent. Lisanne had graduated in the previous fall after studying applied psychology. Lisanne was quite tall and athletic and enjoyed volleyball. Chris Kramers was 21 years old at the time. Those close to her said she had a friendly and open personality and was smart and socially aware. She was an art lover and had graduated in cultural social education specializing in art education, and was supposed to start her follow-up study of art history in Amsterdam in the upcoming fall. She was outgoing and loved socializing and meeting new people, while her friend Lisanne tended to avoid large groups. Several weeks before their trip together to Panama, the two had moved in together to share a dorm room in Amersfoort. The two were close friends and had met while working together at the same cafe restaurant. Both young women were very excited for their trip, and had been saving up money over the past six months to make it happen. They had two goals in mind when planning their long stay in Panama. They wanted to learn Spanish, as well as help out with the locals. During their time there, when not learning the language and exploring the area, they planned on volunteering to help out with the children. They wanted to both learn from the people of Panama, as well as giving back to the community while they stayed there. Though the two didn't have much travel experience of any kind, their parents were not overly worried about their trip. Chris and Lisanne were ready to go on their adventure and have some fun. 
When the pair arrived in Panama, Lisan experienced a small amount of homesickness, which she detailed in her journals. Over the first few days, the girls sent positive messages back to the Netherlands to their parents, and told them how things were going. They mentioned that the people in Boquette, the small town where they were staying, were warm and welcoming. There was a bit of a hang-up at first, though, as there was apparently some miscommunication between Chris and Lisanne and the people they were supposed to be volunteering for. The two ended up arriving in Panama a week earlier than expected due to some accidental errors, and the program leader wasn't ready for them to start. Chris would write in her diary about an unpleasant encounter with the assistant instructor of the school that they would be helping out at, saying they had been very rude and not friendly at all about the date mix-up. Chris would write about their situation in the morning of April 1st. Her diary entry said, There was not yet a place or work for us, so we could not start. The school thought it was odd, as it was all planned out months ago. Tomorrow they will try to get a hold of the head teacher. This was a real disappointment. She would sum up the daily writing with what would end up being the last line in her diary, saying, Anyways, go with the Panamanian flow. Shortly after writing this, the two girls would decide that they would spend their day going on a hike, since they would not be needed to help out at the local school. Due to later inspections of one of their computers, we know that in the later morning hours they had searched the internet for basic information about the El Pianista Trail, one of the local paths around Bouquet. They looked up several pages which described the different entrances and exits of the trail, other paths that branched off of it, and the general terrain conditions. The girls appeared to have focused on sections of the trail that could be traversed in a short amount of time, from three hours down to one section which would only take about an hour and a half. It would seem as if they had planned on doing one of these quicker trails, staying close to the town and leaving them plenty of time to make it back before dinner. At around 1 p.m. on April 1st, Chris and Lisanne would leave their hotel room, equipped with one backpack and their hiking boots. All their other belongings were left behind in the room. They exited the hotel and walked across a small town to start on their short hike. On that afternoon of April 1st, once the girls set foot on the El Pianista Trail, they would never be seen again. The next day, April 2nd, a local guide grew worried when Chris and Lisanne never showed up for what was supposed to be a scheduled tour. The local guides had known that the pair had taken a hike the previous day, and several people had briefly conversed with the girls during their stay in Boquette so far, answering questions about the local paths. The tour guide found out that the girls had not returned to the hostel the night before, and in fact had not been in their rooms since the previous afternoon. Quickly, he sounded the alarm to the local authorities about the possibility of some kind of disappearance and set off into the trail with several others to try and look for the girls on the El Pianista path that they had set out on. Denny and Peter Froon, Lisanne's parents, were in bed sleeping when their phone rang shortly after midnight. Denny picked up the phone and had a strange and disturbing conversation. A woman named Eileen started talking in a Spanish accent and was trying to ask if she was speaking with Lisanne. Denny confusingly stated that her daughter Lisanne was in Panama. The caller then announced that she was calling from Panama and that they were searching for the sand and had this number as a reference. It was here that the parents were first alerted that something was wrong and that their daughter had been missing for a day. 
very quickly, Panama and Dutch agencies would begin working together and trying to make sense of what was going on. While the parents of Chris and Lisanne grew worried over their missing daughters, local guides and law enforcement officers started to organize search parties along the trails leading out of Boquette back in Panama. Police began to question people in an attempt to find any type of usable information. Several eyewitnesses said that they saw the two women eating lunch with two young men earlier on the day of their disappearance. It turned out that these two fellow tourists were also Dutch. By the time this was pieced together, both Dutchmen had returned home, however. They would then be questioned by the Dutch police. Unfortunately, beyond just briefly meeting in one of the restaurants of Boquette, the two young men didn't know much of anything about Chris or Lasanne, or what their plans had been for later in the day. As it turned out, days began to pass, and back in Panama, there were still no signs of the missing girls anywhere, even after nearly non-stop searches. On April 7th, the Director of Civil Protection laid out a plan covering all the possible places that hikers would most likely be in the area. This plan highlighted 25 different points and routes of the Baru Volcano National Park. A team of 40 rescuers and 35 national police agents would look over these areas in search of the missing hikers. One of the local guides of the area, a man named Plenio Montenegro, said about the situation, Sometimes the turistas get lost, but they usually turn up again, or are found by search parties. Still, as days turned to weeks, absolutely nothing could be found. It was as if the girls had simply vanished into thin air in the jungle once they had set out on the trail. In desperation, the parents of Chris and Lasanne pulled together an incentive, offering a $30,000 reward to whoever could find their missing daughters. A month after the girls had disappeared, a group of specialized rescuers and search dogs arrived in Panama from the Netherlands to offer their services in the ongoing search. However, just as with their Panamanian counterparts, the Dutch search teams had no luck. Another month passed with no results, as May turned up no more leads than all the searching in April had. It wouldn't be until mid-June, two months since the girls had last been seen, until the first sign of hope turned up. Interestingly enough, even with hundreds of experts and tour guides scouring the area, it would be a local who would be the one to make the discovery. On June 14th, a family of indigenous people from the town of Los Romeros walked down to the river to bathe. The mother of the family was in the Culebra River when she spotted something along the river bank. As she went over to investigate, she discovered that the object she had seen was a dirty backpack. This woman would later admit that the first thing that popped into her mind when she looked down at the backpack was fear. This person would say, I feel that something weighed inside, like it scared me, but I had to see what was there. After feeling the weight of the backpack after picking it up, she knew that there were things inside of it. Immediately, the family traveled back to their town to hand over the sack to the police. This newly discovered backpack would be the first major breakthrough in the case, and would be a key lead in the investigation that would follow. As it turned out, this backpack in fact did belong to the two missing hikers. The first thing that seemed strange about this discovery was the location. The backpack was found along the river in a spot that was around an eight-hour walk away from where Chris and Lisanne were last known to be. As was known by now, the pair had only intended to hike for an hour or two, so it was unknown how or why this backpack got so far away from their starting point. 
The backpack and its contents were inspected, and inside they found a few items belonging to the two girls. The bag included $83, an insurance card, two cell phones of the girls, sunglasses, various clothing, including two folded-up bras, and a camera. The backpack itself had signs of damage that appeared to be from dragging. As to what caused this type of condition, it was suggested that perhaps the backpack could have somehow been swept down one of the tributaries of the river, the collision with rocks and along the riverbed being the source of the damage. Still, considering that possibility and the fact that the backpack had been outside during 72 days of downpours, high humidity, and intense heat, the contents inside the backpack were surprisingly in near-perfect condition. Though the backpack was now found, a grim outlook of the case started to form. It would seem unlikely that the girls would just leave their backpack alongside the river, or to willingly throw it in. One growing suggestion was that one of the girls had been floating down the river, perhaps deceased, and had been wearing the backpack. Then at some point, the bag had slipped off the body and would eventually rest along the shore. It was also thought that perhaps the backpack had simply been dropped or swept off one of the girls when they had tried crossing the river. Though there were still some questions regarding the state of the backpack and its contents, it was finally a sign for the searching investigators that Chris and Lisanne were perhaps in that area. The family members of the missing hikers were confident that if search teams looked along the river near where the backpack was found, more traces would be found that would lead them to the girls. For the next week, a team of 30 police and guide experts would comb the area, searching for any further signs. While the search continued on, in the meantime, the investigators looked through the contents of the backpack to see what clues they could find there. The most important items found in the bag were the two girls' cell phones and their shared camera. The phones and the camera would become an integral part of the story, as they both gave some insights as to what the girls went through, as well as giving the first hints that something disturbing had possibly happened to the two hikers. The camera had a fully charged battery when Chris and Lisanne ventured off on April 1st for their hike, and still had a fairly good charge when discovered. From the photos taken, we can follow along and see where the girls went and at what time, using the pictures found in the camera. At around 1pm on April 1st, right after the two girls left on their journey, pictures show that they were at a place called El Mirador, or The Lookout, on the El Pianista Trail. An hour later, a photo of Chris shows that they were in a nearby ravine along the path. These early photos would make it seem as if everything is normal. The girls are walking along the trail in the afternoon, and nothing seems amiss. They were smiling and seemed happy as they posed for different shots. Unfortunately, after this point, there is no way to accurately follow their trail. The camera would not be used again for an entire week after those first pictures were taken the afternoon of their disappearance. After the series of photos taken by the girls happily posing and hiking along the El Pianista Trail on the April 1st, the next set of photos came on the night of April 8th. In a pair of photos, it appears to have been taken in near-complete darkness, the flash of the camera being the only light source visible. The first picture appears to be looking down a decline, the ground angling down sharply with some plants visible along the rocky terrain. 
only a few meters is visible from the flash, as beyond these immediate surroundings, nothing can be seen but total darkness. The second picture is taken on top of a rock. There are two thin twigs on the rock with two red plastic bags tangled in them, along with two discarded gum wrappers. The purpose of these two photos, or what exactly the camera is supposed to be aimed at, are still a complete mystery. The camera would still be used through the night of April 8th. However, it would lead to virtually no more useful information. For the next three hours after the previous two pictures, 88 more photos would be taken by the camera, which means the camera was taking a picture about every two to three minutes up until 4 a.m. Unfortunately, these pictures would all show near complete darkness, as if something was blocking the lens of the camera. Along with the two photos I described earlier, there's allegedly a third one taken that shows some detail. This picture has not been released to the public by the families, but it has been said that Chris can be seen partially in it looking away, with what looks like it could be blood on her temple. The camera would become a mystery onto itself. It's hard to make any sense of the camera or the pictures it took. The girls took photos of their trip early in the afternoon of their disappearance, but then suddenly stopped. It's hard to know if whatever trouble Chris and Lasanne happened immediately on the trail or not for some time, but it's hard to think of a reason why they would suddenly stop using the camera right after they started hiking back on April 1st. There were no pictures of their trip along the trails, no more stopping at landmarks to pose for photos, and no pictures of the surrounding scenery or of wildlife. For an entire week, there was just nothing. It's also just as confusing to try and make sense of the photos taken on April 8th. Why did the girls suddenly decide to use the camera again, late into the night, and what were they trying to take pictures of? There have been several different theories to explain the mysterious series of photographs on April 8th. One idea is that the girls had attempted to use the flash as a light source, possibly trying to see something following them in the darkness. What this something could have been is yet another mystery. Some think it could have been a wild animal, while others claim perhaps they were being stalked by someone. This thought is certainly pretty creepy considering their situation. If they were indeed lost and in the dark, and were hearing something or someone moving around them. Personally, when I first thought about this possibility, I was instantly reminded of the scene in the first Saw movie, when the power goes out in the photographer character's building, and he is going around in the dark trying to use the flash of his camera to find whoever is lurking about in his apartment. As disturbing and creepy as that scene was, trying to do the same thing in the middle of the dense woods in the pitch black of night after being lost for a week takes it to a whole new level. That being said, others have disagreed with the camera light being used for this purpose. The main detraction from this idea is that the intense flash of the camera would have the opposite desired effect, Instead of acting like a flashlight, for example, the intense flash of the camera would instead temporarily blind the girls for a short period of time. So it actually wouldn't have done much good if they were trying to immediately identify what was near them in the darkness. Still, if the girls were scared and desperate enough to try and get a glimpse of something in the dark around them, then the camera might have been their only resort, even if it compromised their night vision for a few moments afterwards. Another idea that came up is that the camera was used as a sort of beacon to attract others. If the girls had believed they heard someone off in the distance or thought that search parties were in the area, 
they could have used the camera flash to try and alert these people to their location. Unfortunately, if there were people in the area, the camera flashes did not lead them to the lost hikers. Also, if the girls had used it for this purpose, why did they only use it for this one night during their entire disappearance, instead of trying it every night? Again, the camera had a full charge to start with, so it's not like they were risking draining the battery that fast. In any case, the camera pictures give both answers and more questions. It lets us know that Chris and Lisanne were, in fact, on El Pianista Trail on the afternoon of their disappearance, as expected. But beyond that, it's all a mystery. Why these pictures were taken a week later, who was taking the pictures, and why more weren't taken on other days, all remain yet another piece of the mystery. Just as with the camera, the phones would yield some tidbits of useful information, but also supply investigators with even more questions. Chris had an iPhone 4, and Lisanne had a Samsung Galaxy S3. Once the backpack was found, the investigators would be able to look at the phone's call logs to reveal the activity during the time that the hikers were missing. Based on the new information taken from the phones, something would seem to have been off almost immediately after Chris and Lisanne started on their hike. At 4.39pm, just several hours after the girls had started along the trail, and shortly after they had taken pictures of themselves along the path, Chris attempted to call the international emergency number of 112. Minutes later, Lisanne would also attempt to call 112 on her Samsung Galaxy. Unfortunately, since there was no reception in the area, neither call went through. Beyond these two attempted calls, no other activity was performed by the phones on the day of their disappearance. Though these calls never actually reached anyone, it potentially shows that something was going wrong just hours into the hike. What caused this type of distress is unknown, with theories ranging from them first realizing they are lost to them believing they are being followed through the woods. The next day, the two lost women once again tried to get help. In the morning, Lisanne attempted to reach both the international emergency number of 112, and when that didn't work, she called 911, the emergency number in Panama. Later in the afternoon, Chris would try to call 112, but again, to no avail. April 2nd would also be the last time any phone calls would be attempted on the Sands phone. On the third day, Chris tried dialing 911 herself, and the call actually connected for all of one brief second before dropping. The Sands phone appears to have been off for the entirety of the fourth day, and on the fifth, it was turned on to try and find a signal. At around 6am on that day, her phone was turned on for the final time before its battery would drain. During this time, Chris's phone would be turned on intermittently over the next several days in an attempt to search for reception. Something interesting and once again mysterious would happen to Chris's iPhone, though. From April 6th onwards, multiple attempts would be made to try and unlock the iPhone, but would fail due to incorrect PIN numbers. In fact, the correct PIN code would never be entered again from this point on. However, even though the phone would not be successfully unlocked, over the next several days it would still be turned on occasionally. Dozens of emergency call attempts would be made over this time, with none of them going through. On April 11th, 10 days after the girls had gone missing, the iPhone would be turned on for the last time at close to midnight. After it was turned back off, 
no further activity would occur on Chris's phone. The phone usage would become a mystifying part of this case, right alongside the camera. It would appear that the girls first became distressed just hours into their hike. With that being said, though, it's hard to imagine just what was going on that soon into their hike that they would try to call emergency numbers. Even stranger that they would keep attempting to make these phone calls over the span of more than a week as they remained missing, in which during that time there were so many people going out to try and search for them along the path trails. There's also the question as to why Chris's iPhone remained locked for the second half of its known activity. There are several ideas that came up to try and answer this. Perhaps Chris was in such a state of mental distress that she somehow forgot her own pen to her own phone. It could be Lisanne was manning the phones, and for some reason either tried entering pen numbers by herself to try and open it on her own, or was just guessing because Chris was unable to tell her for some reason. Another idea off this could be that the pair got separated, and Lisanne was holding on to Chris's phone and was trying to unlock it while her friend was missing. Another explanation, one in which leads to other theories explaining the entirety of the disappearance that I'll get into later, would state that it was someone entirely different who was using the phones at this point, an unknown third person. Again, for reasons we don't know, this person had access to the backpack with the phones in it, and would try many times to unlock the iPhone screen, and when that failed would attempt to make emergency calls over the period of several days. But it's hard to say whether any of these scenarios really make much sense. Another oddity about the phones is that they seemingly weren't used at all during the disappearance for anything but occasionally trying to make emergency calls. The girls never attempted to send any text out, not even make any drafts. This was strange as though the region they were in made it very difficult to get a signal needed for a phone call, as the one successful attempt at 911 lasted no more than two seconds. The signal might have been enough to get a text message through. After 2 p.m. of April 1st, the day of their disappearance, neither of them would take any more photos with their phones either. There was no attempts by either of them to leave behind any messages on their phone in case of the worst. No emails would be attempted to be sent, or again, no drafts of any kind written. No notes were left on the phone, and no video or audio recordings were made in the entire time that they were lost. In fact, beyond turning them on and off a few times a day, it would seem as if Chris and Lisanne just decided to not use their phones at all. This part seems very strange to me, as though I've never been lost in the woods of an unknown country, I would think that most people would try everything they could to get a message out, whether that be a phone call, text message, emails, or using various other messaging apps. At the very least, I think someone would try and document their journey if they were lost in any way, again, perhaps with typing out details or taking photos along their way. It's hard to come up with a good answer as to why their phones were so sparingly used, and this goes back to the camera as well. These were the only two devices they had on them that could in any way either reach the outside world or at least leave behind information on what they were going through and where they were. The fact that the phones were virtually completely ignored for most of the time and the camera was only used at one brief point during their disappearance just baffles me. To explain this, I would have to think that whatever was going on during that time had to have been extremely stressful and mentally exhausting something that would cause Chris and Lisanne to not be thinking entirely straight. 
Of course, multiple theories exist to try and solve this part of the disappearance, and I'll get into those a little later. Going back to the searching investigation. Shortly after the backpack was found, another discovery would be made. The new discovery would entirely change the outlook of the case, and while it would finally answer several questions regarding the fate of the lost girls, it would also add a new layer of mystery to this already puzzling case. The search party would find several articles of clothing found along the banks of the tributary river. Jean shorts belonging to Chris were found along the banks of the river. There are conflicting reports on this part of the case, however, as some accounts claim that the shorts were zipped up and folded neatly, placed on top of a rock along the riverbank. Other witnesses would claim that the shorts were actually found floating in the river itself. The discrepancy between these two versions of the discovery is quite large and has potentially large impacts on which theories should be believed. Unfortunately, within the searching of the two hikers, several such instances of mixed and conflicting reports would arise, a criticism that would later be brought up on how this case was handled by the authorities. Regarding Chris's jean shorts, there are two broad different interpretations, depending on what the actual truth was behind the discovery. If they were in fact found neatly folded up and placed on a rock beside the river, then it would seem to be a deliberate act by perhaps Chris herself, possibly taking the shorts off to bathe in the river. If the shorts were just found floating along the tributary, though, it could lend to a more sinister outcome. While the exact truth behind these shorts may be hard to sort out, intense searching continued on in the area. Two more months would pass by without any further clues. Finally, though, one more discovery was made one that would reveal the grim ending to this strange disappearance case. The new discovery was a hiking boot. What made this new find particularly disturbing was the fact that inside the boot was the remains of a human foot. Just as with the backpack, this discovery led to a focused search of the area, and this new search would turn up even more upsetting news. Part of a pelvic bone was found soon thereafter, with more searching, more bone fragments would be found. While these bones would immediately be sent to testing to compare DNA to the lost girls' families, it seemed that this day of searching had seemingly answered the question as to what was the final fate of the two hikers. Almost as expected at that point, the DNA analysis on the various bone fragments did confirm that they belonged to both Chris and Lisanne. The official investigation could now confirm that both girls were deceased. While it was now known that both girls were dead, there were still many unanswered questions about this case. Not only do we not know what caused the girls to get lost in the first place, but a whole new set of questions arose once it was known that they had died at some point during the time they had been missing. As for the bones, there wasn't that much information that could be gathered from them. Part of this was due to the condition of the bones, as well as just a low number of bones being found. While the human body has over 200 bones, only a small number of bone fragments would be found, with the majority belonging to Lasanne and just a few of the recovered bones from Chris. While dead bodies have been found in this region over the years, there hasn't been a case like this where the bones of two people were found scattered across a wide area. One thing that was odd about the discovery was that the bones that belonged to Chris appeared to be very clean and were bleached by phosphorus. While phosphorus is a naturally occurring element, it was not found in the local soil where the bones were discovered. 
On the other hand, the bones belonging to the sand still had tissue remains attached to them. It seemed odd that, though the bones were found in the same general area, Chris's bones seemed to undergo a completely different decomposition process than the sand's. Also, the way that Lasanne's foot was found in her hiking boot did not seem normal. Criminologist Octavio Calderon weighed in on the two strange findings regarding the bone conditions and the hiking boot. He claimed it was very strange and rare to see something like this, where the bones of the foot were broken off and separated at the ankle, which would lead to the foot being found inside the boot. As for the phosphorus effects on the bones belonging to Chris, Octavio said the match could indicate the use of fertilizers or chemicals on the bones. For Octavio, this would almost certainly mean that a human had handled the remains, possibly showing that someone used this chemical in an attempt to cover up or wash away any evidence. Still, if this was the case, it's strange that this is only found on the bones belonging to Chris, while the sand still had tissues connected to them. This really didn't make any sense, adding on the fact that if someone wanted to go through the effort of trying to clean the bones, why not just hide or bury the remains in the first place, instead of placing them back out along the river to be found? With the discovery of the bones, the investigators now knew the start and end point of the hiker's lost time. It's impossible to know exactly how Chris and Lisanne got from their last known locations on the El Pianista Trail on the afternoon of April 1st, to where the bones were found. In order to get to that location, they would have to pass through several dangerous gullies, featuring narrow paths and nearly completely vertical walls on either side. They would have also had to cross the river at three different locations. While the girls could have gotten lost along the trail during that first day, it didn't make much sense to people why they would continue walking along these dangerous paths instead of just turning back, or staying where they were and waiting for rescue. After the bones were found, for some time after the search continued. However, nothing else could be found. There was no more belongings, no more found clothing, and no more bones. The searching part of the case was eventually ended, and all that was left was for people to look over the small amount of evidence found to try and piece this puzzle together. While some began to theorize and make claims, others started to lay blame on those who had conducted the search. The investigation as a whole had been met with some controversy. It seemed to be a mess from the start. The National Civil Protection Agency took control of the investigation early on, and were the first to search through the Dutch girls' rooms and belongings. Rafael Guerrero, the chief of the complex case unit of the public ministry, said about this act, They overstepped their bounds, and they performed procedures that should have been done by criminology technicians. Criminologist Octavio Calderon also had some harsh words for the investigation. On how the evidence was handled by the search parties, he stated, They took the evidence as if it were something for a courier service. The crime scene was wasted. We'll never know the truth. It's amazing that the search teams, however being amateurs, did not take photos of the exact position and location of the jeans or the backpack, and not one bone was collected the way it should have been by police or forensics. Another part of potential blunder of the case lay in the recovery of the backpack. After the Panamanian investigators were done with the backpack, it was sent overseas to the Dutch Forensic Institute. It was only here that several dozen fingerprints were found on it that did not belong to either Chris or Lasanne. While this may jump out at some people to suggest 
uh, this would indicate that other people were involved in their disappearance or leaving the backpack where it was found. It could also be a side effect of the lackadaisical manner in which the investigation was handled. None of the indigenous people involved in finding it had their fingerprints taken. Also, it isn't known for sure just how many different people handled it before it reached the Dutch forensics team. In any case, it's hard to say for sure whether the multitude of unidentified fingerprints on the backpack has any significance to the mystery. Also, as for where the bones were found, no detailed forensic examination was ever performed in the area. None of the dog teams, either the Panamanian or Dutch teams, were ever led to the spot. In fact, beyond a few photographs taken where the bones were being collected, there was no real documentation on what was going on. The search team just gathered up all the bones they found, tossed them in a few plastic trash bags, and handed them over to the prosecutors once they got back out of the jungle. Definitely not the ideal way to undergo such a task, especially one with so much international attention. So it really came as no surprise at the amount of backlash and criticism this caused. However, one of the reasons why not as much focus and detail was put into the case was because the Panamanian leads refused to consider the case a criminal investigation, despite requests by both the Dutch and even the forensics examiners in Panama. Since it was always considered just a missing persons case, we are left with what appears to be glaring holes in the investigation. There was also some confusion about the multiple discoveries and breakthroughs made in the case. There seems to be varying accounts made for each step, and it didn't help that there were conflicting issues in the reports across three different languages of Spanish, Dutch, and English. Certain translational errors would cause confusion in determining what actually happened. There were some people saying the bones were all found in one location, others saying they were found in several different clusters, and still others claiming that all the bones were found spread out over an area of several kilometers. There were reports of the found foot and the hiking boot being discovered in the river, while others say that it was found half-buried behind a tree. And as I mentioned before, we have some accounts saying Chris's jean shorts were found neatly folded and placed on top of a large rock, while others claim they were found floating in the river. In researching for this case, I also came across this confusing nature behind the investigation. For each step of the case, I was reading multiple articles that were written during the time of the investigation, and had to bounce between English, Dutch, and Spanish reports. And I found quite a number of contradictions and uncertainty of the facts myself. It was hard to bring everything together to paint one clear picture, when a Dutch article claimed something was discovered in this way on a certain date, while a contemporary Spanish article said they were found in a different way and on another day. When presenting this information of the case in this episode, I did my best to go with the versions that were confirmed across multiple reports, and left out a few pieces of information that seemed to conflict with others or seemed to be a product of miscommunication. With all that said, all that I've talked about covers everything we know about the story of Chris and Lasanne, from their initial disappearance and the search that followed. For the next part of this discussion, I will be going over some of the theories about this case, and the popular explanations that have been created to try and solve all the unanswered questions. Regarding the disappearance of Chris Kramers and Lisanne Froon, we have a small number of facts spread throughout the case. What we know for certain is that they started on the El Pianista Trail, and at some point they would end up dying, with their bones being found a considerable distance away. 
Virtually everything that happened in between those beginning and end moments are open to interpretation and debate. And as such, this mystery has spawned a large amount of theories. These theories cover a wide range, with some stating the simple idea that the girls just got lost and eventually died from more natural causes, to more sinister and disturbing ideas. Some of these more darker explanations include the work of a serial killer, encounters with cannibals, organ traffickers, and more. The varying theories can generally fall into one of two categories, dependent on whether foul play is considered to be involved or not. First off, I will cover some of the explanations that do not include any type of foul play. Perhaps the most simplest answer as to what happened to Chris and Lisanne would state that there were no other parties involved, and that they were all by themselves the entire time they were missing. One broad theory states that the girls just happened to get hopelessly lost almost immediately upon their hike on the El Pianista path. One piece of supporting evidence is that the first set of emergency call attempts from their cell phones started a few hours after they had started hiking. Judging from the paths that they were looking up on their computer, it would seem as if they had intended to have taken a short hike that would only last an hour or two. However, once several hours had passed and they still had no idea where they were, the girls knew that they were lost and in trouble and tried to call for help. After this point, it's hard to say exactly what happened, but under this theory, the girls most likely kept wandering along the different paths and trails and just got themselves further lost. Hunger, exhaustion, and dehydration would quickly set in, as the girls had taken no extra provisions with them. It would make sense that under these conditions, after a couple days, it would have been increasingly difficult for them to think straight and to come up with a logical plan to try and get rescued. In terms of this explanation of the girls getting lost, there are a few scenarios that could cause their death. It could be that they kept hiking until they just couldn't go any further, collapsing near the same area and dying. Then a mixture of weather elements and animals could have caused their bones to be picked apart and spread out. Since the backpack, clothing, and some body parts were found in or along the river, it could be that the pair got swept up while trying to cross it at some point and ended up drowning. Also, as they were trekking through a wild jungle, some believe that dangerous wildlife of the area could have caused their death in some way. Another idea is that the two hikers died after suddenly falling off a high cliff. Frank Vandergoot, a forensic pathologist who was head of the research team studying the details of the case, believes that this theory is more likely than foul play. Frank said, Having taken the geographical and social conditions into account with the technical facts that emerge from the forensic investigation, a crime in the form of robbery, rape, violent crime, or kidnapping is very unlikely. The team of forensic specialists believe that the most probable cause of death for the hikers was them falling off a cliff at some point along the trails. Many of the cliffs in the area were as high as 40 meters, a fall from which could easily be fatal. Also, water currents from the river are also very strong at the bottom of these cliffs, which could explain why the remains were hard to find for so long, and would also explain why the bones would eventually be found along the banks of a river tributary. While these type of theories involving more natural deaths or foul play do have some merit, there are still a lot of unusual things to consider. One is why or how Chris and Lisanne got lost so quickly. They were on one of the shorter trails around Boquette, and had researched the trails before setting off. 
So it seems unusual that they would deviate or go off trail on their own so soon after starting. Also, if they had taken a wrong turn onto another path and realized they were lost, why didn't they just turn around? There's also the camera and phone usage to keep in mind. The camera was only used in the first hour of their hike, at the first stops along the El Pianista Trail. Why did they not stop for other pictures along the way, if it would take them several hours to notice that they were lost? Also, again, if they were simply lost on their own, it's hard to make sense of their phone usage, or lack thereof. If they realized they were lost just hours into their hike, why did they only try to make one phone call apiece for that entire day? Why didn't they try sending out any text or emails or any other type of messages throughout the entire time they were lost? Why didn't they try to take any pictures or videos for the entire time? And finally, there is the odd circumstances involving Chris's iPhone, in that for several days there were multiple failed attempts at entering the PIN code to unlock the phone. Earlier I brought up the possibility that the pair got separated, and so it was Lisanne who was trying to unlock the phone, but considering that their bones were found in the same area, I find that hard to believe. However, some have pointed out that the cell phone and camera use in itself proves that the girls were alone. Carl Whale, who has decades of search and rescue operations and law enforcement experience, came to the conclusion that whatever incident initially forced the girls to becoming lost was not criminal. Carl said, I don't see any evidence of foul play. They're continuing to take pictures and using their phones. I'd say that makes it look like some kind of accident, at least initially. No third party would let their victim operate their phones and camera after abduction. To me personally, though the idea of they just got lost is the simplest solution, considering how many unanswered questions it leaves behind and the unusual behavior needed for it to be true, I can definitely see why so many don't put much belief in it. So now I'll move on to the second set of explanations, as the majority of the theories around the missing hikers involve some type or form of foul play. Some of the leading theories state that the two women were abducted and murdered in some way. The backing of this theory states that the girls were kidnapped at some point into their hike, and were eventually killed and then dismembered. After committing the murder, the attacker could have then hacked apart their bodies and threw the remains in the water, which would explain why some of the bones were found along the riverbanks. As gruesome as this sounds, it certainly wouldn't be outside the possibility. There are numerous cases of killers who dismember their victims, a few examples of this being the Cleveland torso murderer Ed Kemper and Jeffrey Dahmer. With that being said, we can't say for certain that this theory is the correct one. There was not enough information given by analysis of the recovered bones to suggest what the cause of death was. However, with what bones were found, there are a couple things that can potentially be ruled out. During the investigation, a statement was issued that revealed that the bones showed no signs of cutting, blunt trauma, or bullet marks. In fact, of all the bones recovered, all of them showed practically no signs of physical trauma at all. The coroner who worked on the bones, Diametis Trejos, said about the inconclusive nature behind studying the bones. They cannot clarify the situation because the few remains that were found did not show any signs of abuse or trauma. While this is interesting and perhaps could be used to rule out the possibility of foul play, we must remember that only a small number of bones were actually discovered. If the killer had used a knife or a gun, for example, and dismembered the body, they could have purposely hidden or destroyed any bones or tissues samples that would show this. 
Dr. Humberto Moss was the director of the Institute of Legal Medicine, which ran the forensics of the case. Dr. Moss came up with an idea that would explain the manner in which the remains were found. He says that there is a possibility that the dismemberment of the bodies is a product of lime treatment. Lime is typically a mixture of calcium hydroxide and sodium or potassium hydroxide, all corrosive materials. Dr. Moss claims that if the bodies were covered in lime, its corrosive property would likely cause the limbs and extremities to eventually separate and fall off. This could help explain the separated foot found in the hiking boot, which had no signs of being physically cut off with a knife or saw, for example. Dr. Moss says that the process of decomposing a body in lime would take several days. Another theory that involves kidnapping murder surrounds rumors of a small group of indigenous people who are referred to as Los Conejos, or the rabbits. Los Conejos are a secluded people who live in small caves or underground dwellings. They mostly live off the wildlife of the jungle and nearby vegetation, as well as occasionally the stray pig or cow. What sets them apart from others are the rumors that they are descendants of cannibals, and that some members of the group still wish to practice that lifestyle. Though this theory is mostly based just on rumors and urban legends, there are a few things that play into this idea. One is that some of the bone fragments remains were found in the area relatively close to other bone fragments, those belonging to cattle, so it could be that this area was a dumping ground for used bones. Also, some believe that the backpack seems to have been planted in a way for it to be discovered. Many have found it strange that the backpack was found next to the river, yet nothing inside showed water damage. In fact, all the contents of the backpack were all free of any type of damage, even the pair of cheap sunglasses. With this theory, these Los Canejos cannibals captured the lost hikers. They then killed, dismembered, and ate them, eventually tossing their bones and remains into the river. Finally, since these indigenous people had no use for the backpack or the modern technology inside, they simply dropped it along the river, where it would eventually be found by other locals. This is one of the more disturbing theories for sure, but it is also based almost entirely on speculation. If the Los Conejos are in fact a group of cannibalistic killers roaming the jungles, then there should be more cases of missing hikers beyond just Chris and Lasan. Also, again, since the collected bones show no signs of cut marks or trauma, it seems unlikely that a group of primitive cannibals were the ones behind the dismemberment. There's another interesting theory that I came across that is one that claims that the girls didn't actually get lost at all, or at least not exactly as is believed. While the camera would show that the girls were on the trail at 1pm, which would be the last confirmed known location of them, there are a series of eyewitnesses who have stated that they saw Chris and Lisanne after that time. A teacher who was working at the Spanish language school on the day of the disappearance said that both of the girls were there that afternoon at around the same time that the pictures were taken. There was also a local tour guide who said that around 2 p.m. he saw them in the town of Boquette and talked to them briefly. The girls asked if they were heading in the right direction to get on El Pianista Trail, but the guide told them that they were heading in the direction of a different path called Pedra de Altolino. This same guide also said that he saw the girls a short time later getting into a cab. Another woman claimed to have seen them as late as 4 p.m. that afternoon, 
and was able to accurately describe the clothing that the girls were wearing, which was later shown to be true by the pictures taken. And still, there were several other witnesses who said they were pretty sure that they saw the two hikers later on in the day, when the established story would suggest that they were lost on the trail. If this theory were to be true, though, things would start to get tricky. As both the camera and phone usage would indicate that Chris and Lisanne were hiking on El Pianista Trail throughout that entire time span. If these witnesses were to be believed, the two women would have had to gone onto the trail to take the photos, come back to Boquette to be seen by multiple people, and then ventured back up the trail, and then that is when they got lost. Or if they got into a taxi cab, as the guide claimed he saw, perhaps they drove to another location where they started hiking, and this could have actually caused them to get lost faster as they were in an unfamiliar area. Using this line of thinking, if one were to try to theorize even further, it could be a possibility that the girls in fact did come back to Boquette off the trail that afternoon, and it was at this point that they ran into their abductor. Then at some point later on, they were murdered. Following this idea on, if the attackers seriously intended to make it look like a case of the girls being lost on their own, he could have hiked parts of the trails at different points in the days following disappearance and made the phone calls himself. They could have also taken all these strange night photos as another false hint to show the investigators that the girls were still alive and lost at that point. If you combine all this, the scheme with the previous theory of the murderer dismembering the bones to be left on the trail as if they had died there, then it would certainly seem as if the area had some type of criminal mastermind on the loose. As interesting as this theory is, personally I find it much more complex and convoluted than all the other alternatives. The easiest way to answer the contradictions caused by the eyewitness accounts from the phone and camera data is just to consider them to be in some way incorrect. Eyewitness accounts are notorious for being either exaggerated or mistaken. It could be that in the time it took from the days the girls disappeared to when these witnesses were actually questioned by the police, that their memory of this time could have been warped or confused. The witnesses could have just been mixing up the days that they saw the two hikers, or were confusing them for other people that they saw. Maybe the teacher saw the two girls on the afternoon of May 31st instead of April 1st, for example. Of these theories that I've mentioned and gone over, there are countless more to consider. With all these theories, it is hard to pick just one that seems to answer the most questions. There are pros and cons to the different theories of death that consider both natural deaths and those that involve foul play. After the case had been closed, public prosecutor Bethsaida Pitti stated her verdict in summarizing the case. She said there had been no signs of human action on the bone. They did not appear to be dissected, shot, or knived. There were no signs of trauma at all in the bones recovered. The cause behind the chemical treatment of Chris Kramer's bones could not be officially explained. Prosecutor Pitty stated that there were dangerous animals in the area, such as panthers, that could have killed the girls. She also stated that the terrain and rivers were dangerous, especially in the area where the bones were found. So, Prosecutor Petty concluded that the girls got lost on the trail and eventually died from either being swept away in the river and drowning or were killed by wild animals. Obviously, the response to this vague official theory statement was not well received. The lawyer who was working with the parents of the dead hikers, Enrique Arrocha, summed up Prosecutor Petty's claims as incomplete. He said, 
In this hypothesis, there does not exist proof whatsoever. Under the prosecutor's scenario, there should have been marks on the bones. How come the bones didn't show bruising from being dragged? Orocha also criticized the investigation for not coming up with any answers about the chemical treatment of Chris's bones. As there was virtually no attempts at trying to determine where, how, or why, her remains seemed to have been washed clean with phosphorus. Whether this was a natural reaction or if it was man-made was completely unknown, and pretty much ignored in the official report. Another criticism Orocha had about the investigation was why there was no mention at all about the lack of any blood or bodily tissues found on the clothing recovered by the search parties. This is a good question, and one that I think seems to debunk any theories involving animal attacks. If the two girls were in fact attacked and killed by wild animals, how did their clothes come off, and why were they clean of any blood? Orocha also made claims to strongly debunk the idea that the girls had drowned in the river. He stated that though the Rio Calubre tributary, where the bones were found, originates near El Pianista, where the girls started out hiking, in the month of April, the water is shallow and its flow is weak. It is highly unlikely that bodies would have been able to be dragged along the river in this state. However, perhaps the most damning fact that would go against the official statement was that the bones of the girls were found upstream and not downstream. Orocha deemed it illogical to think that the girls somehow were carried by the river against the current. The lawyer Orocha and the parents of Chris Kramers took it upon themselves to test out the theory that the girls got lost so easily and quickly on their hike. They stated that it was plainly obvious to them where the trails deviated from the main path, and it would not have been likely at all that the two girls would have taken one of these wrong paths and not have noticed immediately. Orocha himself decided to hike from the start of the El Pianista Trail to where the bones were found, and said that the paths were not poorly marked and it didn't make sense to him as to why anyone could get so lost for days and days on the loops of the trails. The parents of Chris Kramers came to the conclusion that it was impossible for the girls to have gotten lost after hiking along the same path they took. They believe that a third party had to be involved, and that foul play is the answer behind the deaths. However, just as with the parents in Orocha countering the theory of the official statement, others have countered their theory and statements as well. It has been pointed out that the trail is more difficult to traverse, and the markings aren't as obvious on rainy days, though this shouldn't apply to the girls on April 1st, since it was a clear sunny day. Jose Gonzalez, who was actually the local tour guide who hiked along the trail along with the Kramers when they arrived in Panama, came to the opposite conclusion as the parents. He believes that it isn't overly difficult to get turned around on the trails, and personally believes that the girls got lost. However, other local gods come forward and gave their own personal opinions, and said that the girls should not have gotten lost considering the conditions of the day. With this case, and with all the different theories behind it, it really seems that as soon as one person comes up with an explanation, someone else can bring up facts to disprove it and then be followed up by another person who brings up even more information to disprove that person. And then this just keeps continuing in an ongoing, endless cycle. There are multiple different theories and explanations depending on if the girls died on their own, or if foul play is involved. And since it can't even be proven whether foul play was in fact involved, then it really does leave the door open for nearly countless possibilities. There is one last theory that I wanted to go over, one that adds a little bit of conspiracy to the story. 
there are some who believe that the Panamanian investigators and government knew that foul play was involved and that the girls had in fact been murdered. However, such news could potentially have a harmful impact on the country's tourism. Tourism in Panama generates about $4 billion a year, making up almost 20% of the nation's total GDP. A significant drop in tourism would have a huge fallout for the country, especially small towns like Boquette, where the girls have been staying. The economy of many such small communities depend and thrive on the income that tourism brings. So, to answer the question as to why the Panamanian officials refused to view this disappearance as a criminal case, and seemed to make a mess of the investigation, it all comes down to an attempt at protecting tourism. A tragic story of two young women getting lost in the jungle and dying sounds a hell of a lot better on the international scene than having a mysterious killer who abducts, murders, and dismembers tourists along the popular trails. This theory would certainly explain certain things, such as the official statement on the girl's death by either accidental drowning or being killed by animals, despite the contradicting evidence. At the same time, it does leave a lot of unanswered questions, such as whether law enforcement actually knew the culprit behind the deaths, but decided not to arrest them in order to keep the whole thing under wraps. As of now, the story of Chris Kramer's and Lisanne Froon remains a mystery. Almost every part of their disappearance remains unsolved, including how they got lost, why no signs of them could be found for months, how did they die, and was anyone else involved. Taking into account the strange nature and location of their disappearance, it's possible we will never know for sure what exactly happened to them on the trails of Panama. In the words of a local tour guide who was asked about the fates of the two missing girls, he summed up this story with a simple statement. There are many ways to die up there in the mountains. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Strange Matters Podcast. If you have your own ideas and theories behind the deaths of Chris Kramers and Lisanne Froon, please write into the podcast and let me know. You can reach us at our email, strangematterspodcast at gmail.com. You can also follow the podcast and contact us by our social media accounts on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Finally, I ask if you are listening to the show on iTunes and enjoy the podcast, please take the time to leave a rating and a review, as it helps promote the podcast so we can always reach new listeners. So until the next episode of the Strange Matters podcast, take care, everyone.